Harm reduction is all about um, by the people for the people. I mean, any licensed professional in Idaho can dispense and prescribe naloxone. In Idaho, a recovery coach um, has certain requirements. They require at least one year in recovery themselves, that they go through a minimum 56 hours of training, and that they become certified through the, the IBADCC. The ability to have telehealth has just opened up the doors for so many more people to get services now that before couldn't because of transportation or childcare. Welcome back. This is Something for the Pain, podcast produced by Project Echo in Idaho, made for Idaho's healthcare professionals working to learn best practices in the fight to prevent, treat, and facilitate recovery from opioid and substance use disorders in communities across the state of Idaho. I'm your host, Sam Steffen. Well, the E stands for extensions, looking where we aim to be. CH is for community healthcare, the welfare you and me. last episode, we heard from Marjorie Wilson, Executive Director of Idaho's Harm Reduction Project, and Ian Tresoyer, DNP at Cache Valley Health Center in Logan, Utah, gave us some more insight into the reasoning behind harm reduction, as well as an update on Idaho's syringe service programs. Not only do communities with syringe service programs see a reduction in the incidence of HIV and hepatitis C, uh, but they also see a reduction in overdose rates and participants are more likely to enter treatment or stop injecting altogether if they are accessing a syringe service program. On today's episode, episode nine, we've got a special guest joining us on the program. We're going to be speaking with Ladessa Foster, licensed clinical professional counselor, national certified counselor, master addictions counselor, and clinical services manager at BPA Health in Boise. If you've been tuning in to Something for the Pain, you may recall Ladessa's lecture from a previous episode on the levels of care in addiction treatment. Well, today, Ladessa is going to be talking with me about how to navigate and access services related to substance use disorder treatment in Idaho. That's coming up on today's episode of Something for the Pain. Sign up for our free sessions. There's a handful every month. Echo Idaho. You can earn CE credit while you sit and eat your lunch. And here's Ladessa. Ladessa, let's just start out by having you introduce yourself to our audience. My name's Ladessa Foster. I'm the Clinical Services Manager at BPA Health. Welcome to the program. Um, I was wondering if maybe you could start by just telling us a little bit about what your role as a Clinical Services Manager entails. BPA Health manages the state substance use disorder contract for state-funded substance use treatment. And then we also have a large uh, EAP network, um, Employee Assistance Program Network. And so as the clinical services manager, my role is to make sure that all of the work we do in those areas, that there is some clinical oversight, and that may involve supervising other clinicians that we have on staff, providing technical assistance to 
the behavioral health providers and substance use disorder providers that we have out in the community, doing some quality assurance activities with those providers and helping with training. Can you elaborate a little bit on what sorts of substance use disorder services are available to people? Sure. Um, The state of Idaho currently pays for a number of services. Uh, We have your traditional counseling that's done in an outpatient setting. We provide residential services, both medical as well as um, non-medical. We have detox services available. We have what's called transitional housing, which are for individuals that maybe don't meet criteria or have a need for full residential placement could go into a transitional house where they've got supportive staff 24-7, but the individual might still leave during the day and go to work, um, where in residential treatment, you're usually there for a few weeks while you get stable um, in your recovery and then usually transition out either to a halfway house or transitional house, or you um, return to your home and continue without patient. Um, And then we also have a number of, uh, they're called recovery support services that Idaho covers. And those are going to be things like um, drug testing, transportation to get to and from treatment. Um, Some communities have childcare that can be utilized while the parents are in treatment, not not when they go to work, but while they're in their treatment sessions. Um, We have safe and sober housing that is available. Um, for individuals that maybe they're homeless or maybe they live in an environment where the other people in their house are using and they need they need an opportunity to um, get stable in their recovery and then they may or may not choose to go back to the home that they came from or maybe their family has said until you have some clean time you're not welcome here Um, and so we have some safe and sober housing services in a number of the communities around the state. And then we also uh, have uh, recovery coaching available. Um, And recovery coaches are a great resource for individuals new in recovery to help them get comfortable with building a sober support system. Um, Recovery coaches are able to, you know, maybe go to court with an individual if they have court coming up or go with them to their first 12-step meeting or help them find um, a recreational activity that they enjoy doing in the community. Um, So recovery coaches are also a wonderful resource. You mentioned part of your job is training. Do you train recovery coaches? Um, There is a formal training program, and um, that is ran through the Idaho Board of Alcohol and Drug Counselors. And so they do that initial training and certification. And then we have ongoing trainings that we offer that we encourage any of the providers, whether it be a recovery coach or clinician, to attend on a number of topics. What does becoming certified as a peer recovery or recovery coach entail? It is, it's a, it's quite a process. Um, There are a number of hours of training that they have to go through. um, And then they have to get a number of supervised hours of practical experience um, in order to get that certification. And then once they've got that certification, it requires ongoing training or continuing education as well as ongoing supervision. For the folks who may be trying to access these services that are out there who may be under underinsured or may not have any insurance at all, can you say a little bit about what sorts of criteria these programs entail? Yeah, we have a screening line, 1-800-922-3406. 
and we would ask anyone to call in on that screening line. Um, when they call in, we first kind of assess, do they have other resources available? Like if they're on Medicaid um, or they're eligible for Medicaid, Medicaid covers that service. And so that would be kind of the first line that we would um, encourage them to use the resources that are available. Now, if someone has insurance and they've got a really high deductible, for instance, the state, depending on the, the circumstance, the state may be able to cover those individuals as well. Um, there really is a desire to get them into care and get, get help that is needed. And we do everything we can to um, make sure that if, if the resource is available, they can use it. Now, some of the different programs that the state of Idaho gets funding through, um, each of the funding streams have a different qualification on who qualifies. And so if, if an individual calls the screening line, we're going to go over all those resources and try and find one of the funding streams that we can get them plugged into. And what about if a patient is on Medicaid? If an individual has Medicaid, Medicaid does not cover some of the recovery support services such as safe and sober housing. And so Idaho has allowed some blended funding. So an individual might be in treatment with a with their Medicaid and then they could be still get access to safe and sober housing through the state funded SED system. Um, so we will we will help get them hooked up with the providers. We'll do that initial financial screening and try and plug them into whatever funding stream we can. Um, and then the provider will do a clinical assessment to see if they meet clinical criteria, whether that be through Medicaid or through SUD. And if they meet that clinical criteria, then we'll work with the individuals on an individualized plan, um, assess what all the needs are, and get them plugged in to the services that are available in their community. You also mentioned in your introduction that BPA offers an employee assistance program. Is, is there any overlap here between substance use disorders services and that program? It, it could be. An employee assistance program is, is really short term and each, each company can purchase their own plans. So some plans are going to be more robust than others. Um, a family may be eligible, for instance, for three visits a year. Another company may choose a larger plan where maybe each individual in the family is eligible for 12 visits a year. So it just kind of depends on what plan the company has purchased. And those sessions really are intended to be short term. And for a lot of individuals in recovery, they're going to need more than that three to five sessions. But those three to five to 12 sessions can really help kind of do that assessment of is substance abuse treatment needed? Um, does this person meet clinical criteria? And if so, help do an assessment of where, where could those needs best be met and then do that linkage and get them tied in to treatment from there. And that treatment, again, depending on the situation, it could be state-said funded treatment. Not everyone that has um, an EAP plan is going to have health care coverage. And so some individuals may qualify um, or maybe they do have a plan, but it's a high deductible plan that they they don't have the money for the deductible. So some of those individuals may still qualify for state funded services. I also wanted to ask about folks who are maybe dealing with the justice system who may be getting out of a period of incarceration. Um, do you find that your work intersects with those populations at all in terms of um, getting them access to treatment? 
frequently. Um, there, there has been some changes over the last probably five, 10 years, and we just continue to see more and more changes every year, really trying to help that transition back into the community go smoothly. And that transition starts before a person is released. And um, we're finding more often than not, the individuals even prior to being released to the community have completed a drug and alcohol assessment. Um, In many cases, they already have been referred and approved for treatment. And so they, they hit the ground running oftentimes with their first counseling appointment within a day of getting out. Um, Depending on the community, some counties around the state provide that drug and alcohol treatment at probation and parole. And in other communities, that treatment program is done in the community with community-based providers. Um, And so getting them set up right away with counseling, um, in a lot of cases, when they are released, they already have housing set up. And depending on how much housing units they've already used in a year, they may get two to six months of housing. Um, Six months is usually longer than what we're going to see, maybe two to four months of housing available. So they're, they're going to be able to get the ground running with supports in place for counseling, try and get them hooked up with a recovery coach right away, housing. Um, for many of them, they're going to need transportation uh, to get to and from their counseling appointments. And generally, they're required to get a job right away. Case management is a big one. We'll get them hooked in with a case manager right away to help them regain some of that independence and get, get going again. We've spoken in previous episodes about the difficulty that folks have who may be living in frontier communities um, and their ability to access services due to their location and the lack of transportation. Are any of these services you're mentioning available through telehealth? Yes. I would say regardless of where you are in the state, if you've got access to a computer or a phone and access to the internet, we've got telehealth services available. That's been one of the positive sides of the pandemic is treatment providers have gotten very adept at using telehealth. And so we've had a number of clients that before would have been very, very difficult, if not impossible for them to get into treatment that have been able to fully engage in both individual and group counseling on a regular basis. Um, and so that, that has helped. Now there are still pockets of Idaho where internet is difficult. Um, and there are definitely individuals that have struggled with, you know, maybe they don't have a cell phone with a data plan, or maybe they don't have a computer. Um, and in those communities, providers have been very, creative and trying to find some solutions. We've had some providers that have bought iPads and say, all right, if you come to the office, you can check out an iPad and sit out in your car. Case managers can call and talk with them on the phone and problem solve. You know, is there, do you know anyone that has a phone that you could use that has a data plan? Does your neighbor have a computer that you could use with some privacy? And so the ability to have telehealth has just opened up the doors for so many more people to get services now that before couldn't because of transportation or childcare. Yeah, I think I think we had five uh, telehealth providers in our network before COVID hit, and in a matter of two weeks, I think we had two thousand. <laughs> 
Wow. (laughs) It just became one of those things that it's great to see people face to face. And that's what so many of us have done for years is in person. And it forced everyone to learn how to use telehealth and um, it opened up doors for a lot of people. Now, it, it definitely is a challenge in rural areas, though. I, I, I don't want to um, say it's not because of just connectivity issues is a challenge. And some individuals do not have Internet capabilities. Um, so for some people, it still remains a challenge. Is there anything that the systems can be doing to help reduce the stigma around substance use disorder? You know, I, I think that stigma has been around for for as long as there's been substance use. Um, there are federal laws in place to try and reduce the stigma to protect confidentiality uh, of individuals seeking substance use treatment. A lot of people have heard of HIPAA. And when you go to the doctor, you have to sign HIPAA forms. Um, for those enrolling in substance use disorder treatment, they have even more protections than what HIPAA affords them. So there are a lot of rules and laws and and stuff in place to try and protect that confidentiality, but there still is that stigma attached. Um, The state has, you know, over the last several years, they will receive funding and do some um, stigma campaigns. Definitely, there's a movement in that direction. Is there a big statewide project right now going on to address that? No, we're trying to embed that in everything we do. Um, As an industry, a few years ago, even changing the terminology, it used to be substance abuse, and um, now it's become substance use. And so just even changing some of that language it's a disorder. It's a, an illness. So when we approach it from that health standpoint with this is a disease, this is an illness that people need help in recovering from, um, that's how we try and present it when we are out doing trainings with the community, when we are working with people in, in sessions, in group sessions as people enroll in treatment, working with their families. Um, we really encourage family involvement in treatment whenever it is safe and appropriate to do so. And providing that training um, and that education with families as well, that your loved one is suffering from a disease. This is a disease. It's not a moral failure. It's a disease. So we try and do it in those pockets. And again, there's national campaigns um, that go on as well, but we've got a long way to go. Um, And yeah, and you're bringing up families makes me think, are, are some of these resources things that if a, if a concerned family member is worried about somebody in their family who might be struggling with a substance use disorder, are there ways for family members to get involved and get trained on some of this stuff? There are family groups available at a lot of our recovery centers around Idaho. Um, there are 12-step meetings like Al-Anon, for instance, that is, an, is another great resource for family members. A lot of communities will have trainings throughout the year. Um, Red Ribbon Week is one that's done for, for youth. And usually with any of those big events, there are training components or lectures or town halls that go along with that. And we would always encourage families to be a part of that. Um, But we're finding one of the real big assets in a lot of communities really are those uh, peer recovery centers. Um, Like up in Valley County, there's one called The Rock that has 
just recently started going and I'm hearing great things um, about all the activities going on at The Rock. And I think that would be a great place where family members could call and see how they could get involved. For listeners who may be tuning in for the first time, The Rock stands for Recovery-Oriented Community and is one of the only places of its kind in Valley County. In a previous episode, Monica Forbes, CEO of Recovery United and one of the founders of The Rock, joined us to talk about the services offered there. Here's what she had to say about it. So uh, The Rock in Valley County, which is the newest recovery community center in Idaho, um, is a satellite of Pier Wellness Center out of Boise. The Rock was one of our rural outreach efforts that came to fruition. And basically the concept behind it is just that there are multiple pathways to recovery. There is no one way that somebody enters their and maintains their own recovery, which is like any other type of chronic disease. Um, there's more than one way to do it. So what that means for a recovery community center to embrace multiple pathways to recovery means that I'm not going to tell you what your recovery path is going to look like. I'm not going to tell you what type of treatment you should do because I believe that this is your path. I believe you're going to need options to choose from. And so the recovery community centers um, make sure that they have a wide variety of different types of support groups to offer to someone. So it's sort of cafeteria style, if you will, so that you have options. Here's Ladessa. Yeah, I want to leave a little bit of time for you to talk about anything maybe I didn't ask about or anything that you want to share with the healthcare workforce in Idaho who may be working with people who have substance use disorders. There's so much. For healthcare workers, I really want to put a plug in for Echo Idaho. Um, I think Echo Idaho has some great training resources on a regular basis. Um, and I think it's critically important that the, the workforce is out there staying current on what, what new trends are out there. Um, there are a lot of free community trainings that I encourage any individual to go to in the, in COVID days, there's a ton of webinars that are out there. I think it's just super important to stay current on what the trends are, what use trends are, and what treatment trends are, what what new treatment methodologies are coming out. So I really want to put a plug out there for making sure that people are staying current on what's going on. For individuals that are either themselves needing treatment or for their loved ones who are maybe concerned about them, um, Again, I'm going to encourage, please have those individuals call and get screened. Um, See if they're eligible for services. And if they are, go get that assessment and see, do they, do they clinically have a problem that would, um, they might benefit for some help from. Um, So help is available and people just need to pick up the phone and call and we'll, we'll get you plugged in. Um, And Go to your local community resource centers as well. Go to those peer recovery centers. They've got a wealth of information. They can sit down and, and talk with you. And if, if you're not sure if you want to go to treatment, that's a great place to start as well. Go talk with someone. Talk through what's going on. Um, they can provide you the support. If you're scared about making that initial phone call, they can sit down with you and help you while you're making that phone call. Um, and it's a great it's a great resource for you wherever you are in your recovery. 
That again was an interview with Ladessa Foster, clinical services manager at BPA Health in Boise. Information about how to contact the organizations and services that Ladessa mentioned are available in our podcast show notes on our website, www.uidaho.edu slash echo hyphen podcast. If you're interested in joining our free live echo sessions to receive continuing education credit, learn best practices, ask a question, or grow your community, please visit our website at www.uidaho.edu echo, where you can register to attend, sign up to receive announcements, donate, and find out more information about our programs. Something for the Pain is brought to you by Echo Idaho, supported by the Whammy Medical Education Program and the University of Idaho, and is made possible by VCorp, the Valley County Opioid Response Project. We here at Echo also want to hear your feedback. We welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions and invite you to email us at echoidaho at uidaho.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to Something for the Pain using your podcast app. And if you have a moment, write us a review. That's about all the time we have for today. But join us next time when we'll be hearing a special presentation from Gary Lucas, Vice President of Education at Arch Pro Coding. Gary's going to be giving a special training on how to bill and code for patients with opioid use disorder. That's coming up next time on Something for the Pain. Until then, Idaho, take care of yourself. Echo Idaho, sign up for our free sessions. There's a handful every month. Echo Idaho, you can earn CE credit while you sit and eat your lunch. Something for the Pain is made possible by grant number GA1RH39585 from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of CDI1 or HRSA. The voices you heard at the beginning of the episode were those of Marjorie Wilson, Kathy Oliphant, Monica Forbes, and Ladessa Foster, respectively. We'd also like to thank all of our listeners, without whom none of this would be possible. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. Michelle Smith is the Echo Idaho Program Director. Katie Palmer is our Assistant Director. Our Marketing Manager is Lindsay Lotus. Our Program Managers are Carly Klein and Lindsay Winters-Jewel. Our Program Coordinators are Kayla Blades, Jessica Whitlock, and Sam Steffen. You can register and more. We'll email you the Zoom link if you haven't come before. Get it.
special use To MDs, RNs, pharmacists, LCSWs PhDs, professors, and anyone who wants to learn You can give out C credit if you've got hours left to earn of Idaho faculty address the needs of our state and beyond through their research and scholarly activities. My name is Lee Cooper, and I'm your host for The Vandal Theory, a podcast about science and research at U of I. During each show, I talk to U of I researchers about questions they want to answer, problems they want to solve, and what gets them excited about their research. For example, I recently spoke to Bert Baumgartner, who is an associate professor in the Department of Politics and Philosophy at the University of Idaho. We discussed the scientific and societal factors that lead to people being vaccine hesitant. Moderates seem to be the most sensitive to changes in risk. So that's to say, when risk is really low, the moderates behave similarly to conservatives in that not as many of them are willing to get vaccinated compared to Democrats. But as you dial up the risk so that the risk is really, really high, then liberals or Democrats are much more willing to get vaccinated compared to Republicans. And so are the moderates. So the moderates sort of swing the most. They seem to be most sensitive to information about the risk of the disease. If you want to learn more about science and research at the University of Idaho, I hope you'll subscribe to The Vandal Theory on your favorite podcasting platform so you don't miss an episode. You can also visit our website, uidaho.edu slash vandaltheory, to learn more about the podcast. I'm Lee Cooper, and I hope you will be joining me on The Vandal Theory.